Hi, and welcome to The Full Bloom Project, a body-positive parenting podcast dedicated to promoting emotional wellness in our children and health at every size for the whole family. Each week, we speak with extraordinary experts and distill everything from scholarly research to self-help books into accessible and digestible daily parenting practices. We're your hosts, Zoe Bisbing and Leslie Block, both New York City-based adolescent eating disorder psychotherapists and mothers of two here to help you help your children fully bloom. This episode of the Full Bloom Podcast is brought to you by our interactive and downloadable A to Z guides to body positive parenting. If you are determined to break the cycle of body insecurity and scrutiny for you and your family and to put body positive parenting into action, learn more and sign up at fullbloomproject.com slash join us. These free virtual guides will be free for the remainder of the Full Bloom podcast season one, which wraps just three weeks from today on Friday, July 12th. So you still have some time to sign up for our mailing list and gain access to these guides. Each guide has a wealth of content, including research and resources to help you put the fundamentals of body positive parenting into action, as well as practical daily tips to help you and your care providers help your children fully bloom. Again, those can be accessed by signing up at fullbloomproject.com slash join us. Today, we're asking the body positive parenting question, what about boys? Most of our conversations with guests so far have been either implicitly or explicitly focused on raising daughters. And as you'll hear in this episode, that mirrors the state of the way we talk about this as a culture and even eating disorder research field as a whole. But boys and young men aren't immune to eating disorders, and as the mom of two boys, I'm particularly interested in this question. What are the unique challenges they may face, and how might disordered eating and body image concerns look different for our sons than our daughters? So this week, we're joined by two guests out in California, Dr. Stuart Murray and Dr. Jason Nagata, who both treat adolescents with eating disorders and conduct research on body image and disordered eating in males. Stu and Jason, we're so glad you're here. Thank you for having us. So let's start with just hearing a little bit about each of you, since we have two, your titles, where you work, and how you came to specialize in male body image and eating disorders. So I'm, I'm Dr. Stuart Murray. I'm a clinical psychologist an assistant professor at the University of California in San Francisco. I work clinically with eating disorders and primarily with adolescents and their families and also um, head up a research lab that focuses on male body image and, and disordered eating in males. And, and I guess I came to specialize in, uh, in male eating disorders via my, um, my PhD was focused on eating disorders in males, which dovetailed actually with my own background in professional sports and my sort of inkling that some of the behaviors that were going on around me may not be the healthiest in terms of body image and and medical health and so I carried that through into my PhD and started to research this area and realized it was one of the most understudied areas in all of clinical psychology and so decided to devote certainly my early career to this to male eating disorders to try and better illustrate what some guys go through with eating disorders. That's kind of remarkable just what you said like the most understudied I can't believe that. Just listening to it now, I didn't know that. Thanks for letting us know. <laughs> yeah, a little. Um, I mean, we know how understudied eating disorders in general are, but a, a little tidbit of information is that less than 1% of all eating disorder research to date, um, less than 1% is oriented specifically towards males. It's a good reminder uh, to us why we're having this episode and why we're, why we're having you. And an episode we just did recently actually said that, I guess, what it, what was it, Leslie, non-binary folks with eating disorders have like not even been studied. So I'm really glad to spend some time with, with you today. And Dr. Jason Nagata, will you introduce yourself as well? Sure. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, So I'm a pediatrician by training and I focus on uh, the medical management of adolescents and young adults with um, eating disorders. 
Uh, I'm currently finishing up a clinical fellowship um, at the University of California, San Francisco, the same institution as Stuart, um, and I'll be transitioning to an assistant professor in uh, July. So I'm super excited to have a more permanent role, um, and my focus is really going to be on uh, eating disorders, particularly in males. And I think that I first actually entered medicine with an interest in actually malnutrition um, internationally. So I actually did malnutrition research in Guatemala and Kenya um, and was more in the context of food insecurity and you know, starvation um, and actually got really interested in the physiology and sort of the medical complications of severe malnutrition. Um, and that's actually how I how I got into the medical research related to malnutrition. And, um, you know, unfortunately in the Bay Area in the U.S., uh, one of the more common causes of severe malnutrition is in the form of eating disorders. And, um, and so that's how I entered sort of that area. And clinically, I've just really enjoyed working with adolescents and their families as well as young adults. Um, and then had the good fortune of meeting um, Stuart when I started here three years ago. And that sort of also helped me to focus on uh, sort of the medical complications in males with eating disorders. And how do you both work together? I mean, do you work together in clinical practice? Uh, so yeah, when I first started out in training, you know, the eating disorders program at UCSF is interdisciplinary. So our patients are both seen, you know, for therapy and for mental health support. And they also have medical visits to check in on their medical stability and vital signs. And so there were a number, I think both of us had an interest in, uh, in the male patients. Um, and so typically, uh, we would co-follow them. I would be on the medical side and Stuart would be on the, um, like psychology side. Um, and so we did have a number of patients in common that we worked with. And I think that helped us to identify some of the research gaps and um, other um, pitfalls that we've sort of found because there really are no treatment guidelines in this population, both on the mental health or the medical side. No treatment guidelines. Did I hear you say that? Yeah, there are no specific treatment guidelines for that are specific to males in, for medical or uh, mental health that I'm aware of. Yeah, I definitely have not come across any in my work, and I have seen some males in my practice, my clinical practice, and it's nice to know that, you know, you guys are looking looking into closing that gap as best as you can as two people do, doing research. I, I want to just jump right into the research and kind of look at, so on this podcast, we've talked a lot about appearance ideals on the show, particularly the thin ideal, but really mostly as it pertains to girls and young women or really how, how the research has spent more time on them. Um, and we want to know, what do we need to know and what do the parents of boys listening need to know and girls um, about the idealized male body image and how this affects boys and young men? Yeah, I think that that's a really important question. And as you mentioned, I think a lot of our focus in the eating disorders field is on the thinnest ideal, whereas, which may pertain more to uh, the idealized sort of feminine body ideal. But for males, the idealized body image is really very muscular. And there's actually some evidence that this idealized muscular body image has actually become more muscular and bigger um, over time. I think one interesting um, study was actually done by Harrison Pope at Harvard that actually examined male action figures over the past 30 years and found that even in a 30-year period, the like biceps, chest size, and sort of objective markers in these action figures have gotten bigger over time. And, you know, this is also reflected in Hollywood and sort of the idealized male figures now are like The Rock, Incredible Hulk or Thor, you know, really large, very muscular men. Um, and I think that this translates a little bit into, you know, these body ideals for adolescent boys and young men. Um, and actually, Stuart and I recently worked on a study that looked at um, actually national data from the Youth Risk Behavior Survey, which surveys about 15,000 teenagers across the U.S., which is nationally representative and while many people have looked at the weight, the weight loss questions in the, the youth risk behavior survey, nobody had really looked at the, they actually asked questions about 
trying to, to gain weight and get bulkier. And we actually found that 30% of teenage boys are reporting that they're attempting to get bigger and bulkier. Um, and this is actually uh, higher even in the group that by BMI, if you, you know, they also reported their height and weight. And boys who actually were in the BMI categorization that would be considered or classified, you know, normal weight by the CDC, and we can debate whether or not that's um, accurate, but people who would objectively by the CDC standards be considered within the normal body weight or BMI actually like over 40% of those boys were actually trying to gain weight still. Um, and so it is, I think, something that's translated into teenage boys and, and young men. Stuart, I don't know if you, there's anything else you'd like to add. Yeah, no, I, I agree with all of that. Um, there have been a couple of big landmark studies, and, and, and one I'm thinking of in particular was actually in the context of female body dissatisfaction, which was done in the 80s, which looks at the sort of waist circumference of Playboy centerfolds longitudinally over a t 10 or 15 year period and found that they'd, they'd demonstrated marked um, and demonstrable shrinking dimension that they'd become sort of unrealistically thin. And this is this real sort of landmark study illustrating the objectification and these unrealistic beauty standards for females in, in, in the Western society. And, and there was one done in the early 90s looking at play girl centerfolds over the same time period and they found that these guys had gained on average about 20 pounds of muscularity and had lost about 10 percent body fat so not only were these folks getting bigger they were also losing body fat at the same time and becoming more ripped um, which better enhances the visibility of muscularity and so we know now that these trends are pretty pervasive and the drive for bigger muscles and less body fat is pretty ubiquitous amongst males and there are a couple of theories why that as to why that might be the case Few have been sort of comprehensively substantiated, but one uh, posits that, uh, and if we think back over the last sort of four or five decades, when you think about the movie stars, and, and Jason, you alluded to The Rock and Thor, incredibly muscular guys with incredibly low percentages of body fat, which is pretty unattainable for most folks. When you think about the Hollywood stars of 50 years ago, or 40 years ago, even the sort of Tom Hanks and the Clint Eastwoods, they weren't that unattainable, but now they're incredibly unattainable. And one theory posits that as, um, this is called the theory of threatened masculinity, and what this really sort of says in a nutshell is that as men and women have become more, I guess, equal, or as there's more parity in society, there are fewer domains through which men can exert their masculine dominance, and I'm paraphrasing the literature here, but it's thought that big muscles is the last sort of bastion of masculine dominance. It's the last way in which a male who's threatened in their masculinity can show masculine dominance, and so this muscularity compensates for this perceived loss or lack of, of masculinity, in a way. And I'm just thinking about, as, you, as you're saying that, it sounds like the ideal is progressively getting more and more unattainable, like over time. And we're seeing it more and more pervasively. It's infiltrated computer game characters, certainly movie characters, magazines and, and i should add that that, that the magazine study i alluded to the play girl study we know that magazine content marketed that may for males that trend has been even more pronounced so like the gqs or the men's health magazines that those shifts have been even more dramatic and i think another new area where this is really exacerbated is social media like instagram and facebook and people also posting these selfies that that also are bigger yeah, I was going to ask about that, just kind of what you've seen in social media. Just anecdotally, it seems as if that would match up, you know, and um, just another form of what we're seeing in, in different avenues. It's really interesting to think about it in this way. Um, I, just, I just don't think we, we think about it that much. I mean, even parents who are listening to the podcast – have talked about that, you know, they're parents of boys, so they don't really know what to do with all this information that we're talking about. So I'm hoping that, you know, this can kind of have people think in a different way, particularly parents of boys. Yeah, and I and I am a parent of boys. I have two little boys, and um, Leslie even recently was like, you know, said we have to talk more about boys on the podcast, like, or encouraging me to chime in more about my experience because it's true, like. What's happening here on our show, it runs parallel to what you're finding in the literature and what your experience is, I guess, just what everybody's experience is. A lot of people assume that eating disorders even are like a female 
disorder, when of course we know that's not the case. And I, I suppose that kind of leads us to, I, I loved in, in some of the research that I read, you refer to the enigma of male eating disorders. And I know you're, you're speaking to this already, but if you could say a little more about what makes male eating disorders enigmatical. Yeah, that's a really good question. And it's certainly one we've grappled with both clinically and empirically for, for a long time. Um, and the most common pathway into treatment really, at least in my experience, is through a sort of diagnosis of depression or anxiety, which one layer deeper really stems from body image concerns. Um, and what, what we sort of are seeing more and more of is misdiagnoses for our male patients, and, and sometimes five or six misdiagnoses even before they get referred to a specialist eating disorder center. Is this misnomer is so pervasive that males don't get eating disorders, and uh, we shouldn't screen for these things in males, and, and especially as it relates to some of the more muscularity-oriented behaviors, which, which we'll talk about later, they're really shrouded in this sort of ethos of it being health and ha- a health-enhancing pursuit, and it's sort of okay to sacrifice important parts of your life for the pursuit of health, muscularity, or fitness. So we as a field, I think, have been puzzled for a while by, by male eating disorders. But, but I guess I can't fully answer that question without a bit of a, a, bit of a walk down memory lane uh, mm-hmm. in terms of the history of eating disorders. So if this is the point at which we lose our, uh, our listeners, just roll your eyes and I'll stop this. <laughs> no, go for it. Let's walk us. Walk us down. Let's go. Let's go. <laughs> when you think about the seminal studies of, of eating disorder field, um, they were Morton, first of all, and, and then Gull and Lasseg both described what later became anorexia nervosa. They described the first constellation of symptoms that was an eating disorder attributed to a psychological cause rather than a physical, um, a medical illness at that time. And they both coined this on anorexia nervosa. And in their sort of seminal case descriptions, they all, they all three of them made reference to male patients specifically. Gull and Lasseg, of course, were doing their work in about 1873-ish. And then the next study that looked at males specifically was not for about 100 years, Mm. so until the 1970s. And during that time, we'd formed our field. Our entire field had formed. We had developed diagnostic criteria. We had developed sort of symptom measures, self-report measures, um, treatment guidelines. And all of these really important developments for a field happened in the complete absence of research looking at males. So we developed this very female-centric, thin-centric view of what an eating disorder is that really marginalized male experience, the male experience. And, and even more than that, some of the diagnostic criteria ruled out males biologically. And so just up until recently, um, amenorrhea or loss of menses was a diagnostic criterion for an eating disorder. And there's no male endocrine equivalent of that. So this is a circular argument, I know, but the notion was that if, since males can't lose their menses, they can't have an eating disorder. And so that meant that males were just conceptualized as, um, as not eating disordered and their sort of weight loss or other eating disorder-esque behaviors were attributed to broader, more severe psychiatric illnesses. This perpetuated the cycle that males don't get eating disorders. And then as we started to get a few coming into our specialist clinics, sure enough, they were excluded from the treatment trials and they were excluded from the large studies that went on to inform the development of our field further because male uh, researchers wanted to exclude these atypical outliers that might not fall in line with the rest of the data. So we've had this almost century-long absence of males from eating disorder research. And even now, and I alluded to this earlier, only 1% of research is focused on males. We're still coming out of this hole. But what that's still a long way to say that we do grapple with the enigma of male eating disorders and we don't really know fully, even now, all the multidimensional facets of what an eating disorder looks like for a man or a boy. And what what have you, I mean, it's fascinating and it's such a challenge to think about it as a clinician. And, and I'm just wondering what you are seeing and what you've learned about how male eating disorders pr- do present differently if they do from female eating disorders. Yeah, I, I think I'll just chime in here, which is to say that because you know this diagnosis and this understanding is so enigmatical, I, I do think that in our clinical experience, it takes longer for eating disorders to be identified in males. And so at least medically, often the, the illness is quite a bit more severe by the time that we see them. So um, we actually 
uh, at UCSF, there was a sort of chart review of all the males who had been referred to the eating disorder clinic over a several year period. And looking at those sort of charts of all those those males, it turns out that it took several years for for them to be diagnosed, even after they were uh, exhibiting symptoms, and that actually over half of them who presented in clinic were so severe that they had they were medically unstable and had to be hospitalized. Um, and so it's just to say that because there is this enigma and this sort of under-recognition of male eating disorders, I think that often by the time that we see them at the referral center, their illness has become quite severe and they've even become medically unstable. I mean, that, that blows my mind still here and that for, a, for an outpatient first visit to a specialist, more than, more than half of all boys in their first ever visit require immediate and urgent hospitalization. That's yeah. pretty staggering. It's truly, truly staggering. And it really is. And, and you know, I, I know that later on in the podcast, we're going to get more to prevention. But by design, we want to talk about th- this this facet of, uh, of eating disorders with you guys. And I, I just on that note, I'm thinking about like marketing for treatment programs. I think like eating disorder treatment programs, outpatient residential programs, I, I feel like they tend to have females on the cover. <laughs> like, you know, I don't know if that's something that's, uh, if, if any of you have noticed that as well, and maybe it's changing, but I feel like the picture of eating disorders, even um, as propagated by treatment facilities, is very much a female. Yeah, that's been my experience. Some residential treatment centers and some inpatient centers as well don't admit male patients. There are some policies that male and female patients um, cannot be on a, on a unit together, and so invariably that means male eating disorder patients being placed on the burns unit or some other some other unit where they're not where they don't have access to specialized care and really incredibly marginalized in their experience of healthcare. Yeah, I mean, I I think we've seen that evolve a little bit over just the course of of my experience in the industry, but it's there's often, you know, questions around well where who admits guys, who admits men. I mean, it's not rare at all to see that question floating around on listservs. Um you know, on higher levels of care, like you really have to, there's definitely less options. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, just to add to Stuart's point about the, the requirement of amenorrhea for some of the previous diagnoses, um, in the medical guidelines, there are still currently medical guidelines that are based on amenorrhea. And so, um, for instance, um, the Society for Adolescent Health and Medicine guideline on one to assess for bone density is still based on six months of uh, amenorrhea. And so males don't get assessed for bone density or anything like that because it's not within the guideline. And so I think that that's also a area, particularly in the medical field, where that needs to be updated. Yeah. I mean, I'm just thinking too about how stigmatizing then it must feel for boys and, and men to even come forward and seek treatment. But I guess we'll get to that. We have a lot of questions about these muscularity-oriented disordered eating and what the research says and some of the hidden dangers. And we just love to hear from you. Yeah, Um, I can take a start, um, which is just to say, yeah, a lot of the behaviors, we've talked about the different idealized body image. And so therefore, because because the male, the masculine idealized body image is to become more muscular, the the behaviors that many of these boys and young men are engaging in are quite different than the behaviors that we would see for thinness goals or for weight loss. And so, you know, some of these behaviors can include like overconsumption of protein, so protein supplements, shakes, you know, rigidly counting protein consumption and while over sort of consuming protein, maybe restricting fats or carbohydrates. So there is potentially a restriction component of certain types of foods. And often there are like bulking or cutting phases, um, something called like cheat meals, and often just sort of eating beyond feeling full. Now, aside from particular like eating behaviors, there's a lot of supplements um, such as 
creatine or, you know, just protein supplements, androstenedione, like a number of them that people can use to enhance muscularity. I guess the most extreme of that would be androgenic anabolic steroids. Now, we do know that the steroids, which is which are illegal in the U.S., you know, do have a lot of serious medical consequences that can affect your heart. You can be more prone to cardiovascular disease, heart attacks, you know, it can affect your liver, kidneys, and has some pretty serious medical consequences, and therefore they are currently illegal. For a lot of the other supplements, I think the challenge is that they're not regulated by the Food and Drug Administration. Um, they're not prescribed, and so it's act- there's actually very little research on the sort of long-term effects of these supplements. And uh, even more sort of challenging is that one thing that could be marketed as creatine or androstenedione, like it's not regulated, so people may not actually be getting what they think they're getting. Um, And so it's actually very hard to understand what the long-term medical consequences are because um, they're just not researched and they're not regulated. And um, I think that actually poses a big challenge because a lot of these products are ordered on the internet or you know, gotten at places that there's really no guidance in terms of how you use them. Yeah, I think, I think any discussion of muscularity-oriented disordered eating really needs to start with this notion that if we accept the notion that disordered eating stems from an overvaluation of a specific internalized body ideal, then it stands to reason that different body ideals can give rise to different arrays or constellations of disordered eating behaviors and practices. And for a long time, we've thought the only shape that was internalized or overvalued was thin. And so in concert, we've really just looked at thinness-oriented disordered eating behaviors like restraint, restriction, laxative purging, and things that might enhance this drive for thinness. Now, though, as we realize that more males desire muscularity than thinness per se, we've started to realize that the disordered eating behaviors that stem from this ideal body differ quite markedly from what we see in our female patients. So the implications are quite profound. It means that a lot of the theoretical models of disordered eating don't necessarily apply to male presentations. It means that our symptom measures don't hit the mark often uh, in male populations. And it means that um, males go through a, a sort of qualitatively different experience of disordered eating, which Jason just summed up beautifully. I guess engaging in behaviors that are designed to increase muscularity or reduce body fat or both. There's a sort of sting in the tail of this because male body image really runs along two dimensions and one is muscularity and one is leanness. Leanness being defined as the absence of body fat, which really is just there. It's valuable because it enhances the visibility of muscularity. If you look ripped, it better displays your muscularity. But they're physiologically sort of mutually exclusive. And you can't build muscle mass while operating at a caloric deficit. You've got to operate at a caloric surplus to build muscle density. And, um, and what that means is invariably you accumulate somebody at a paucity of some body fat. And over time, the dissatisfaction moves. So it moves from being dissatisfied with muscle, uh, muscularity or muscle bulk or muscle density per se to muscular definition. And so then the disordered eating behaviors are the eating behaviors period might swing towards muscle leanness oriented behaviors and we might see more um, traditional restraint type behaviors and so we've called this this sort of bulk and cut diet and what that means is that folks um, who are on this spectrum are perennially dissatisfied with their body but the goal of the, uh, the sort of target changes um, periodically so they might go through a period of pursuing muscle density and over time become dissatisfied with muscle leanness and then switch goalposts and, and become oriented towards muscle leanness and then lose some muscle tissue and become dissatisfied with their muscle density or muscle size. So there's this perennial body dissatisfaction, but the pendulum just swings back and forth, um, which is definitely a unique facet of male body image and male disordered eating. And, and, and I think you summed up some of the more behavioral features beautifully, Jason, but that really stems from this unique idealized body that's really applicable to males and, and actually an increasing number of females as well, I should add. What I'm struck with right now is how how normalized these behaviors are. Like I, I feel like some people listening to this podcast are probably thinking about maybe, you know, mostly parents are listening or professionals and they're thinking about their experience of, of guys in college or, or high school, you know, doing these behaviors and it being extremely normalized. I mean, it's, I'm just wondering... How have you been dealing with this 
this sense of this is so normalized and overlooked that are people even able to talk about how intrusive this is in their life? Well, I mean, if there was one thing that I'd like a parent to take away from this podcast, it's that you are not immune from an eating disorder if you're male and you're not immune from an eating disorder if you're not restricting your food. Muscularity-oriented disordered eating involves the over-regulation of food uh, or protein in particular, periodically intertwined, intertwined with restricting some macronutrients. But the prevention piece, I think, really ought to focus on the functionality of the male body. Now, the male body is almost comparably objectified as the female body, and there's a, there's a large degree of internalized objectification, which means that males are coming to view themselves as a function of their outward appearance rather than their self subjectively and so I think we really need to start focusing on the functionality of what the body can do and what things it supports rather than how it looks which which feels like a huge uphill struggle now in the age of social media and filters and Instagram and on all those things that are prolific in life in our society now but at its, at its core we are now discovering that disordered eating can span beyond dietary restraint and can span beyond the pursuit of thinness and it's it definitely affects males in large numbers. Jason, do you want to add anything there? Yeah, I, I think that to your point about this normalization, so we're, we actually also worked on a study very recently um, that is fourth, that actually is coming out um, in a couple of weeks um, that looks actually at the prevalence of these behaviors, uh, again, in U.S., a nationally representative sample of teenagers and young adults. And yeah, nearly... 30% of boys are engaging in some type of behavior that's like, pro, whether it's protein overconsumption, overeating certain types of foods, restricting other types of foods, using supplements to get bigger or, um, uh, or even steroid use as sort of the most extreme. And so it is a very common practice. And I think that one um, sort of challenge in, since this is a very new field, um, is actually trying to draw the line. And I think it's a very slippery slope between what is normalized and what becomes disordered, because I guess you could argue that some people who are just take, you know, eating protein, everybody eats protein to some extent. Um, and so where's the line when you're like taking more protein versus, where does that, when does that become disordered? And I think that that's, you know, there is a sort of slippery slope. And I think it's particularly normalized in certain contexts, as you're saying, like sports teams, especially like wrestling or football or ones that you know, really value muscularity. Um, and then where does it sort of where can it be considered within normal eating behavior? So I think it's just an area that, you know, we're going to continue to work on. I think it just makes us all sit back and, and stop and think a little bit about how it presents differently and how some things have been normalized that may be disordered and, I'm just thinking, I don't know if you want to comment on this kind of a, a hot topic, perhaps. Um, but I just remember, Zoe, do you remember when you sent me that uh, news line about the CEO of Twitter kind of talking about his eating habits and even a very, very popular podcaster, uh, you know, writes about this type of thing, um, these very, very kind of rigid diets as being like kind of just acceptable for guys versus if it, when it's presented in, 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 a, in female, like there's a lot of challenge to it. And it's, I don't know if you want to comment. I don't know if you know what we're referring to, but at the article and the article that uh, I sent Leslie and that she's referring to, it had to do with like these dudes in Silicon Valley that are top of their game and because they're top of their game, they're disseminating just utter bullshit, you know, this sort of idea of biohacking and really restrictive diets and intensive fasting and, and all this sort of bonkers stuff that people are kind of uh, taking very seriously. And, and Leslie was, you know, in the article was contrasting it to when women kind of come forward with you know, similar visions, they're kind of accused of having eating disorders, whereas these guys are like, oh, it's just, you know, it's another Steve Jobs, and we'll listen to what he has to say about diet. And yet, 
you know, it does make me horrified about who's getting that information. But anyway, that's what she's referring to. And if you do have any comments about that, we'd be very interested to hear. Yeah, I think that this is a really hot topic right now on biohacking, intermittent fasting. And actually, Stuart and I just were, we were actually invited by the Lancet um, Child and Adolescent Health to write a comment on biohacking specifically, because I think a lot of people are curious about this issue. And I think that, as you're saying, um, you know, there are even scientists, other than the, the, the Silicon Valley you know, executives who are doing this, there are even scientists who look into intermittent fasting and do mice experiments and have shown that if you skip breakfast or you fast for a certain amount of hours, then you know, potentially there are some health benefits. But I think I have a couple of points to make about that. First is that the studies that they're done are, are like on mice and they're in these controlled environments that are not necessarily applicable to humans. Second, that they're all short-term studies. So, so, you know, they can look at weight change and health change over the period of sort of weeks or even months at the longest. But ultimately, when we're trying to promote healthy behaviors and healthy living, you don't want something that's going to help you just for a week or a month. You want something that you really can sustain for, you know, decades for the rest of your life. And we definitely don't have the data related to that. Um, and I think that the third issue is kind of related to what I was mentioning about supplements is that people's definition, there is no one definition of biohacking or intermittent fasting. And I think that's where the danger comes that, you know, some of these experiments where it's, you know, you're fasting for four to six hours, you know, that's one thing, but, you know, very high level people who are talking about fasting for several days at a time. um, And that's, you know, when you get into real danger and that's when you actually can you know, be at risk of fainting or hypoglycemia or, you know, really dangerous shifts in your electrolytes that can get you hospitalized or that you can actually die from. And so I think that the messaging is really complicated because we are listening to, again, idealized males who are executives talking about biohacking. And, you know, there are certain people who say that they do that for days on end. They like don't eat from Sunday through Wednesday. Uh, and that's just really dangerous. But some people's definition of biohacking is, oh, I skip breakfast. And I think that uh, the challenge is that a lot of those messages get mixed up. And so, yeah, I think it's a real um, important issue to to bring attention to. Yes. And, and coming back to kind of being a parent of, of a boy and and listening to this podcast and maybe, you know, thinking what what do I need to be aware of when it comes to my boys and their vulnerabilities? How do I, as a parent, support body positivity in my boys? What do you have to say to those parents? I would, I would say, again, I would just focus on the functionality um, of one's body. And, and really, I, I think that um, what we're seeing now is this unique cluster of behaviors in boys that have flown under the radar for so long it might be a new pb in the gym a personal best or a lap time or some other metric of muscularity oriented behaviors that are sort of assumed by many to be health enhancing frequent weighing behaviors i would look out for we see things like um very early on in prevention programs what we really want to discuss are the red flag behaviors things like label checking um and sort of rumination over protein content or fat content and things like that. And we really want to try and nip that in the bud early and focus on food um, as, a, as a whole rather than it being just fuel, to, to fuel the pursuit of an aesthetic ideal. And, and the same with exercises. It, it, it is a health-enhancing pursuit, and there's this fine line, um, and, and it's no one's goal to pathologize or demonize exercise or even muscularity-oriented exercise at all. But the sort of rigidity of these behaviors can creep in quite quickly. And I think that's what we really want to target in, in these prevention programs. And just to, just to revert back as well to the, to the biohacking conversation you guys have had, um, it's interesting how what we're seeing with males now is that these dietary preferences, um, oftentimes it feels so unsafe for a male to say, yes, I'm unhappy with my body and I'm making dietary modifications to move towards my goal. We're sort of linking now these dietary modifications to cognitive performance, which feels, I think, less emasculating for males um, to sort of say, yes, I'm restricted or I'm biohacking because I want to perform better in my job. Um, ultimately, it's the same behavior 
But this trend now we're seeing is very interesting where we're attributing it to a cognitive outcome as opposed to a body outcome. That's a really important point, and it's just it's actually reminding me of our Beauty Sick episode. Uh, we, we interviewed Renee Engeln, who wrote Beauty Sick, and had a whole conversation about, about sort of that epidemic and how it connects to, well, everything that we talk about on the Full Bloom Project, and how she was saying that boys are not immune, but they are protected. And I think this is maybe an example of how they are protected. It's like this idea that you could just be working on cognitive performance or, you know, I mean, it's like, it's just interesting. It's even though I know you're saying, and I take very seriously this idea that men's bodies are also objectified and that that gets internalized. Um, I think that's a really important point for us to hold that this sort of new iteration of, you know, personal enhancement when it comes to men, it's less about shaping your body, even though that's maybe a, you know, a welcome side effect, right, of this, in, you know, enhancing your performance, which is all about doing and and excelling and sort of being as opposed to women that are kind of conditioned to think of themselves as objects. And anyway, I, I don't know if that makes sense, but I'm just thinking out loud. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And or, or an alternative, it, it might be that the primary goal for the person is to actually is to attain a body ideal, but it might feel so unsafe to disclose that and a more socially accepted way maybe to say I'm trying to enhance my cognitive performance guys and receive a pat on the back yeah. rather than someone raising their eyes and saying, huh, wow, why do you care about your body or your weight or your body fat percentage? Which a lot of guys go through, but there's this sort of almost socially endorsed way of sort of restricting your food in a way that doesn't arouse suspicion, it flies under the radar and it doesn't um, create the same stigma as what males go through when they go through disordered eating or eating disorders. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I do want to, I just, I wanted to ask, just for clarification, because I think parents would appreciate this listening, when you say to really focus on the body's function, can you give some like parental examples of that, of, you know, different ages where they could kind of, where you could model for them listening, like how one would go about focusing on that with their kids, boys? Yeah, it's definitely age specific. Um, I think the... With younger kids, what we see, especially with our male patients, is sort of, and I'm talking pre-adolescent kids, we see mostly presentations of RFID, this avoidant and restrictive food intake disorder, which is sort of a little bit removed from strong or at least centralized body image components. And so usually when we get into the body image prevention work, it's with our adolescents. And we really want to focus on the functionality and as much as can you walk, can you run, can you do the things you want to do? Does it matter how many likes? you get or does it matter um does your body fat percentage matter if you can still go to the bus if you can still play baseball with your buddies or you can still have fun on pizza night and so we really want to try and focus on what the body does rather than how it looks and we really, just, a lot of times folks only evaluate themselves or appraise themselves in as much as how their body looks to others and we really want to shift the shift the focus of that to sort of what can your body do can you run does it carry you does it take you from A to B? Does it tell you when you're hungry? Those kind of things. Great. And that's helpful, I think, because it seems like you answered the million-dollar question with that answer, which was, you know, what is the one thing above all things you'd like all parents to do on the regular to promote body positivity and the boys in their lives? It seems like that was your answer, but I just want to give you a chance to answer it officially. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that would be my answer. And I think that a really important thing to add to that is is the sort of central compass, I guess, or the central um, the central crux of treatment is food is not fuel. Food is to be enjoyed and food is, food is a multitude of things and we convene over food in our culture and our society. But what, oftentimes what boys come to report especially is, is that food is fuel and that anything that's not going to optimize their quest of muscularity is impure or improper fuel that doesn't need to be consumed or put into the machine that's their body. So I really want to try and alert parents to that potential starting point too where guys can to focus wickedly on what they eat and how often they eat. And in contrast to what we see with our thinness-oriented disorders, we see guys 
clock watching for how frequent they eat and becoming anxious if they don't eat often enough because that might mean their bodies aren't topped up with enough protein to continually maximize muscle growth. So the combination of the appraisal of your own body and your relationship with food has to form the center point of prevention programs. And how about you, Jason? Any, uh, any last words you can leave parents with? That one thing you want them all to do on the regular? Yeah, I mean, I think echoing what Stu mentioned and maybe going back a little bit in terms of his history lesson, I, I think that, you know, if we go for sort of this idea of everything in moderation, you know, this is kind of Aristotle, like Greek ideals, but I think that where we really get into trouble with, with children is when we're at sort of the excess, either too, we're restricting too much and we're going for this idealized extreme thinness or on the opposite side, we're having so much excess and going for extreme sort of muscularity or extreme bigness, I think that we really should just be trying to promote like everything in moderation and not trying to do too much of the extreme at either end. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time and expertise and for really doing the work that uh, being the trailblazers, you know, in this field for, for all of us parents and practitioners, we appreciate it so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. And thank you for the work you guys do. This is an incredibly helpful resource for parents, researchers, clinicians, uh, and you guys do a wonderful job. So thanks for having us on the show. I'm really glad we did that. And I'm appreciating, particularly as a mom of two boys, how this thin ideal that we keep talking about on the podcast, how it it sort of fails to communicate that the thin ideal doesn't always mean thin female, that the thin ideal, as Stu and Jason were talking about it, really is an appearance ideal for males and that they've got one too. Like, they've got to be ripped and cut and shred or whatever the expression is, you know, and how it's tough because I think about how unrealistic that is too and how time consuming and sort of mind consuming the pursuit of that would be for our kid that let's say genetically, it just isn't going to be like that. And I think about that from my perspective, my boys are not like they're ever going to be shaped like GI Joe (laughs) and like, that's fine with me. But I don't think I thought until this interview that that might be something that I need to kind of, prepare them to be mindful of. And it's, it is interesting that we have spent so much time sort of focused on females. And it's just remarkable that that sort of is reflected in the way we talk about this as a culture and the research. Yeah. I think what what's important to relay is that it affects males too. Mm-hmm. And it looks a little bit different most of the time and there's reasons why it looks different and sounds different but by no means just because you have a Y chromosome are you immune to the pressures to conform and I think it's it's important for parents to be thinking about this and to help their kids along and kind of buffering them against it, even if they're boys, because Mm -hmm. it's not fair to just think that this podcast is only for girls. Um, And it's not, you know, it's not. You're Mm -hmm. a parent of two boys and it's all relevant, you know, to you too. So I think also there's that other side of the coin, which is something that we didn't really talk about with these researchers, but I would like to talk about in future podcasts is this, what is the effect of moms in particular, but even dads Mm -hmm. talking about their bodies around boys and um, how does that set up boys to be comfortable or uncomfortable or supportive or not supportive of challenging these ideals for women. I think I have a bit of a hypothesis that moms are a little bit more relaxed about fat talk around boys than girls. Mm. Um, Although that's not founded, I just wonder Mm -hmm. about it and what the effects of that 
are yeah on boys I, I thought about this when we did our interview with Eric Stice and we were talking about the body project and I was thinking about how that would be useful for boys for their own purposes, right? To like challenge the thin ideal as it pertains to them or challenge appearance ideals as it pertains to them directly, but also to help boys challenge the thin ideal as it pertains to girls and women because... I think a lot of boys, and I actually think pornography has a has a big hand in this, which would be also an interesting thing to talk more about, like the impact of that in having unrealistic expectations of females' bodies, whether that's conscious or not. I, I wonder about that. And I, I guess my hypothesis is that if we did better by our boys that are going to identify as, let's say, heterosexual who are interested in women sexually down the line or girls, you know, when they start dating and getting interested, helping them have realistic expectations of normal bodies or, you know, size diversity will, there would be something positive there. And I suspect, and again, it's not, we have to find a researcher to help us out next season, but I suspect that this is a problem in that regard too. And, and as it pertains to boys that are interested in boys romantically, you know, in the same way, like these unrealistic appearance expectations. Yeah. So that's our show. Yeah. Today. That's our show. Thank you so much for your listening. And if you have any reactions or questions that came up during this episode, we would love to hear from you. Send us an email at info at fullbloomproject.com or post a comment on our Instagram. And as always, if you like what you're hearing, we would really appreciate you leaving us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts so more people can find the podcast. Thank you all for listening and remember to tune back in next time for more body positive parenting wisdom.